So when John asked me to speak here today, I enthusiastically said yes. You see, I said yes not because I thought I had any deep insights for this distinguished group. I said yes because John just happened to email me on the same day I was lecturing my twin daughters about investing, and they just kept rolling and rolling their eyes and saying, how much longer is this going to take? Now, I'm told that this kind of behavior is perfectly normal for aspiring teenagers, but it's not my idea of a good time. So I figured speaking here would be a lot more fun. And after all, I can't even see all of your eyes from here, and you've got nowhere else to go for the next hour. So my talk is uh, on investing in an age of disruption. And there are three points that I'd like to make. So number one, and then we'll open this up to Q&A. Uh, investors continuously underestimate the speed at which disruption can transform both business and society. Secondly, in an age of rapid technological change, we need to approach valuation, not with heuristics, but with new eyes. And lastly, we should use diversification, not only to play defense, but also to play offense. We don't need a badass three-stock portfolio to outperform the market. So let's first just tackle what disruption is. Dictionaries uh, say that disruption is a break in the normal course of things. And in business, that break can take the form of a new business model or a new technology. Think of Dollar Shave Club, for example. It successfully took on Gillette. So founded in 2011 and empowered by the internet, Dollar Shave Club launched a direct-to-consumer business model that was so successful in attracting customers that Gillette's once un impenetrable economic moat was breached. Gillette then had to decrease the prices of its razors by 12%, which was uh, an unheard of uh, situation after the company had continuously raised prices for, for decades. In the spring of 2017, uh, Unilever was so attracted to the company that it started circling around the business and eventually made an offer for it. History shows that disruption can also be driven by the convergence of new technologies that in turn ignite causal feedback loops. Think of the iPhone, for example. And I'll speak more about Apple a little bit later. But for now, keep in mind that these feedback loops, they exponentially accelerate the adoption of a new system and the demise of the old. Let's talk about a couple of feedback loops for a second. As a long-term investor, feedback loops are so important to me because they can drive exponential growth, but they can do so by also providing the fuel for business to compound earnings in a durable manner. Today, the volume cost feedback loop is helping to accelerate the adoption of battery electric vehicles and renewables, including solar. Think about it this way. When volumes rise for new technologies, costs typically fall along Wright's law. This in turn spurs more consumer adoption 
and greater volumes. Conversely, falling volumes means lower consumer adoption, less utilization, collapsing profits, more stranded assets, less consumer usage, and lower volumes. It's kind of like a, a flywheel working in the wrong direction. And a technology feedback loop adds momentum to this flywheel or virtuous cycle. For example, as solar technology improves, driving the cost per kilowatt hour down, adoption of solar accelerates. And this in turn incentivizes further innovation. On the other hand, peaking fossil fuel demand disincentivizes research and development by traditional energy. And this in turn stifles innovation, which consequently leads to even less demand for fossil fuel. But like a frog placed on the stove in a pot of hot water, we don't necessarily notice the changes going around us until it's too late. There are many other feedback loops of which we should, as investors, be aware. And they have their roots in finance, society, geopolitics, and they, they interlink to accelerate the adoption of a new system and the demise of the old. Now, disruption has existed going all the way back to the Stone Ages, when stone was replaced by a superior technology, bronze. But it's accelerating with profound implications for portfolio management. McKinsey found that the average lifespan of a company in the S&P 500 is just about 18 years. This compares with an average lifespan of about 61 years back in 1958. So put differently, in six decades, a company's lifespan has fallen by about 70%. And would it surprise you to know that since the year 2000, half of the companies in the S&P 500 have either gone bankrupt or have been acquired? So why does this happen, you might ask? And I, th I think the answer is entropy. The second law of thermodynamics tells us that all closed systems lose energy. And this loss of energy is called entropy. And because closed systems lose energy, they require a continuous intake of energy just to survive. Entropy, to me, is what typically kills large businesses. That's because as businesses grow, they typically need an increasing amount of organizational energy. Think of hierarchical management centralized planning, standardized rules. These are just some of the things, some of the ways in which a company can quickly become inefficient, complex, and more vulnerable to the upstarts. We continuously underestimate the speed at which disruption occurs, but why? It's because disruption follows S-curves they follow an exponential pattern, and the human mind is just not rigged, programmed to think in exponential terms. Tony Seba is a respected scholar on disruption, and he says that the pace at which 
technological disruptions occur typically appear slow at first. That's because when a new product grabs a market share or a service, it typically has like one or 2% of the market. But then there's a, like the tipping point and, and growth accelerates into an exponential manner un, until the product or service reaches 80% of the market. And at that point, the market becomes saturated and growth slows. Throughout history, the incumbent players have thought that the new technologies would be adopted slowly and incrementally. And investors have had a similar mindset because we are programmed to embrace our initial thesis and ignore the warning signs, like the frog. But the reality is that the existing system was either drastically transformed and expanded or completely wiped out. And how quickly does this happen, you might ask? And the answer is in less than 20 years. That's been the case for centuries. Let's step back for a second to the year 1440. And the big news then was that the French and the English were coming to the end of the Hundred Year War. Actually, that particular war lasted 116 years. And around the same time, a little-known goldsmith by the name of Herr Gutenberg, Johannes Gutenberg, he invented the printing press. And while people didn't realize it at the time, Mr. Gutenberg unleashed a printing revolution that had profound implications for the Catholic Church and for the entire world. And the same thing happened with the spinning wheel, the steam engine, the automobile, cable and streaming. All were adopted despite initial skepticism, and all were adopted very, very quickly. Let's zoom in on the automobile just for a second. At the, at the turn of the 20th century, the incumbent horse-based road transportation industry dismissed automobiles because there were no paved roads, there were no fueling stations, there were limited supply chains. And in 1904, right around the introduction of the Model T, Carriage Monthly, a highly respected magazine at the time, said that humankind has traveled for centuries in conveyances pulled by beasts. Why would the future look any different? And of course we know that it did. But as Tony Siba notes, automobiles fully displaced road transportation in less than two decades. Car sales, in fact, went from a base of less than 5% of the vehicle fleet in 1905 to 95% in 1925. Disruption, by the way, is not limited to products and services. Even policy innovation can be adopted along S-curves, which in turn can have a dramatic effect on businesses and their underlying securities. For example, the adoption of the internal combustion engine accelerated after the release of Henry Ford's Model T. And consequently, politicians called for the tax of gasoline. Oregon, by the way, was the first state to introduce the tax. The amount was just a penny, penny a gallon. And the year was 1919. And within one decade, all 48 states at the time, plus the District of Columbia, 
followed with their own tax. So that's just a general overview of what disruption looks like and why it happens. The key point to take away here is that because people naturally think in linear terms, we constantly underestimate the pace at which new technologies can take hold, particularly when there are reinforcing causal feedback loops at play. And as investors, we need to be mindful of this and cognizant of technological threats to even the most established enterprises. And we cannot forget that entropy is our enemy. The second point that I'd like to make is that in an age of rapid technological change, I think we need to approach valuation with new eyes. Marcel Proust, the French writer who wrote the monumental novel In Search of Lost Time, said, the real voyage of discovery is not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. And as an investor, I'm reminded of Proust. Our voyage as investors necessitates that we constantly view the world with new eyes. We need to be dynamic and not get trapped using models that may no longer align with reality. If your model of the, of the world is wrong, you're going to make mistakes. You need to understand why something is happening and the underlying system structure. More on that later. While we have to be cautious around high multiple growth companies, we should not immediately dismiss a potential investment just because, on the surface, it might look expensive. Or worse, start working on a short thesis. As John Kenneth Galbraith said, faced with the choice between changing one's mind and proving there's no need to do so, almost everybody gets busy on the proof. My late father, Gerald Tsai, had a long history on Wall Street, most publicly as a fund manager and CEO of Primerica, which was a Dow Jones 30 company at the time. I learned so many wonderful lessons from him, particularly not to dismiss a potential investment just because on the surface it didn't fit the box. He was critical of heuristics like price-earnings ratios because he believed they are sometimes misleading particularly with rapidly growing businesses that are reinvesting so much back into growth. In his camp, there were no shortcuts to uncovering value, something uh, Howard uh, echoed earlier on. Then you might ask, what was his North Star? He encouraged me to focus on the top line, the quality of the business, the profitability of the underlying business, and most importantly, a company's unit economics. Indeed, at this year's Graham and Dodd annual breakfast, Todd Combs of Berkshire Hathaway echoed that view, mentioning several times how important it is to first look at a company's unit economics before diving into an analysis of a business's valuation. Let's look at Geico for a second a company that I think was just highly disruptive to traditional auto insurance companies. Shortly after Warren Buffett purchased Geico, he increased the company's marketing spend. 
He did so because the unit economics of the business were so strong. But did that mean that the company was somehow less profitable because prof profitability temporarily dropped? Absolutely not. In fact, Geico became even more valuable because he was reinvesting his earnings in a business that had very strong economics. He was increasing the intrinsic value of the company at the expense of short-term profitability. And he was doing so because the unit economics of that business were so strong. So how should we think about valuation in an age of disruption? I think this question can be answered by turning to Apple in 2007. The iPhone was released that year because that's when all of the technologies that were necessary to launch the iPhone converged, including touchscreens, lithium-dense ion batteries, processing power. In other words, the iPhone was born through technological convergence. Victor Hugo had it right when he said that nothing is more powerful than an idea whose time has come. Apple, as we know, was a major disruptor. Nokia's market share fell from 51% in the fourth quarter of 2007 to less than 3% just five years later. Sales dropped by 75%. But despite a rapid uptake in market share, there was no shortage of short sellers. Apple's market value continued to grow if you go back and look at press articles from that time, you'll see countless articles from famous managers recommending shorting Apple. How many times have we seen this kind of movie? That's because, as the German philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer said, all truth passes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Second, it is violently opposed. And third, it is accepted as being self evident. The cognitive biases of commitment and consistency, incentive super response tendency, sunk cost fallacy, anchoring bias, among others, underpin Schopenhauer's wisdom. And in business, think about it this way, the incumbents, they don't want to kill off their existing products because they want to believe that their, these new technologies will be adopted slowly and incrementally, but we know that they typically aren't. They want to protect what they have because they are locked into existing business models. Think of Amazon taking on retail. And they're locked into certain thought processes, cultures, incentive structures. That's why disruptions almost always come from outside the core market. Not long after the iPhone was, re was released in 2007, Apple's market value exceeded the market value of Nokia, Palm, and Research in Motion combined. The argument in, in our community was that Apple was overvalued, but that argument was widespread. Countless investors said that number or valuation makes no sense. And lending confirmation bias to the naysayers, Steve Ballman, who was CEO of Microsoft at the time, said that Apple's iPhone has no chance of getting significant market share. No chance. But clearly, with the benefit of hindsight, Apple's market value did make sense. 
Apple was creating powerful network effects that would lead to the disruption of the incumbent players. And in an industry where winner-take-all or winner-take-most dynamics are in play, Apple was valued as highly as it was for a reason. The underlying system structure was changing. Apple's business model itself was changing. And to properly evaluate Apple as a potential investment, one had to look at Apple with new eyes. It's really so convincing when somebody says that a company's market value does not make sense because it exceeds the market value of all the competitors combined. That sounds just so rational, right? But if you look at history, that argument is often misguided. Logically, whoever is making that argument is in effect saying that the market value of A, as stated in the, in the numerator, should not exceed the market value of the competition B plus C plus D plus E, as stated in the denominator. But why not? We know that a company's market value should approximate the present value of future cash flows. Well, if a business is being disrupted, its future cash flows are likely to decrease, while the cash flows of this disruptor are likely to increase. And if you think about it this way, that means as the cash flows of the disruptor continue to grow, and the market value reflects that growth, the disruptor will not be worth just 1x the denominator, but 2x, 3x, and so forth as the incumbent players go out of business. After all, fractions increase exponentially as the denominator trends toward zero. Simple math. Indeed, Apple was cheap in 2007 when its market value was just 1x its competitors combined. So, Investing in an age of disruption means that more than ever, we need to think forward as opposed to backwards. We need to ask, where is the world ultimately heading? And we need to break free from a this-makes-no-sense snap judgment, particularly because gap accounting does a very poor job of representing the underlying economically of rapidly growing businesses. Put, it, put differently, we need to do deep work and not dismiss a seemingly high valuation without understanding the economics of the business and the underlying system structure. To do anything else is arguably, in my opinion, irresponsible. The last point that I'd like to make is on portfolio diversification. And I don't think we need to leave Charlie Munger's cult if you appropriate a bit of what I say here. Sci Capital has a 23-year track record. We started out owning about 25 businesses and eventually pared that back to about a dozen. That's because, like many of you here, I'm sure, I was influenced by Charlie. I followed his view that one should just have a handful of investments. More recently, though, my thinking has changed. Today, we own about 20 businesses, so the pendulum has swung a bit back to where it was a number of years ago. That's still rather concentrated for most investors, particularly as our top five holdings are targeted to make up about 47% of the portfolio. But we are certainly more diversified than we were not too long ago. 
we become more diversified because a rapidly innovating world offers us the ability to use diversification to play defense as well as offense. What do I mean by this? There are 4,000 publicly traded companies in America alone. And there are so many new companies being born each year. Many are disrupting the incumbent players. I prefer businesses that are benefiting from one or more positive feedback loops, require little capital, and can reinvest that capital at high rates of return over a long duration. And when they have pricing power too, that's a great thing. And it's particularly a good thing when we have a world of inflation. If there's a silver lining in this world today, in bear markets like today, it's this. Bear markets provide us with the opportunity to diversify and provide protection against unknown variables without necessarily having to sacrifice upside. That's because in bear markets, there are usually lots of opportunities in which to deploy capital effectively. There is massive asymmetry in certain names and sectors today. Think of software where winner-take-all or winner-take-most dynamics are at play. Software is the infrastructure of the economy today is in many ways like railroads were the infrastructure of the economy during the times of Jay Hill in Cornelius Vanderbilt. Why would we want to limit our ability to own some of these businesses? Personally, within what I believe to be my circle of competence, I prefer to plant a few more seeds in order to position our investors to benefit from a variety of businesses that are leading as opposed to being disrupted by change. I would have come to this conclusion a lot sooner had I just paid more attention to my late father. But like my twin daughters, I'm sure I just rolled my eyes when he was trying to explain things to me and wondered, how much longer is this going to take? But I do remember on a fishing trip on Long Island Sound, I, I cast my rod into the wind, and dad said to me, you can't do that. You have to position yourself with the wind at your back. And I think that was great advice and advice that he got from his mother, my grandmother, Ruth. Ruth, incidentally, a uh, bit of a divergence, but I thought I'd talk a little bit about her. Ruth was the only woman to trade stocks on the Shanghai Stock Exchange from 1939 to 1941. And she was a really uh, feisty woman. To give you an example, uh, she once stripped the valuable topsoil off of her land the night before she was ordered by the communist government to hand over the property. And while my father was admired for his deal-making and being ahead of the times, many of the moves he made, I think, were because of my grandmother's suggestions. But I think that when it comes to investing in particular in equities, Shadrow said it best. As I've gotten older, I more clearly see the value of being on the right side of trends, the right side of great people, the right side of tre tremendous ambition, and the right side of very scalable, saleable, and useful technology. And by inversion, I conclude 
that we cannot afford not to be aligned with the future. To ignore a growth company because its valuation lacks the precision of physics and might make us uncomfortable is arguably irresponsible. That's why we build in a margin of safety to begin with. Within our circle of competence, we just have to get used to dealing with shades of gray. I think that that's the key to investing in an uncertain world, and it will always be uncertain. A friend recently introduced me to the music of Bill Evans. He was an American jazz pianist and composer. And in an interview that he gave called The Creative Process in Self-Teaching, Evans said, you could be too cautious. You could be cautious to the point where you never discover anything. I think you have to have a certain adventurous spirit. He was talking about music, but what he, what he said was so true of investing as well. And he reminds me a bit of what Howard Marks was telling our group earlier today, that there needs to be a balance. You need to take some risks. If you're not taking enough risks, you're not gonna outperform. And they need to be measured and uh, quantifiable. So in conclusion, I'll end with this. Let's not be dissuaded by investing in disruptive businesses. Rather, let's embrace the very idea of disruption by recognizing its power to create trillion dollar market values. And let's do so while avoiding the traps that can come with heuristics. And by tackling valuation with new and always critical eyes. And I personally think we should do so by planting just a few more seeds that can sprout into multi-baggers. After all, as I often remind my twin daughters, there's a whole world out there just waiting to be explored. Thanks so much. Great talk. I, the, I was just going to ask on the Apple statement, do, how much do you think reflexivity plays into uh, to them becoming what they've become now? Sorry, it gets feedback. The, the, so in other words, how much comes, how much of uh, their, I know we have to speculate a little bit, but how much of their, what they are now is driven by the critics, the criticism that they face, the, uh, the naysayers, all, all of that, which keeps them focused on, on continuing continue to innovate, whereas something takes something like the Nifty 50 or a lot of momentum or glamour stocks that basically uh, they get too complacent. So how much do you need that criticism? How much does that help us if we're in Apple in 07? Does that make sense? I think so. I mean, if you're not innovating, you're dying. And the interesting thing with Apple is that personally, I think they need, a, historically at least, they've needed one major product every 10 years. That has allowed them to carry through their growth. They haven't needed multiple new products of size to create the kind of revenue growth that they've created. So it's, historically, it's been one major product per 10 years. Now, that might be changing, and I think that to your point, like competition is very valuable and criticism is very valuable because it keeps people on their feet, keeps management on their feet. And personally, like it's 
It's like writing annual letters or shareholder letters or investor letters, right? It causes you to think about things. So you need to be constantly innovating and thinking about where something is heading. I think I somewhat answered your question, but not fully. Christopher, I'm, I'm, I'm just curious. You know, you, you talked about how the Apple scenario in which they had a larger market cap than their, their peers was, was not actually... Uh, you know, reflective of the dynamic that was to come. I see that your largest position is Tesla. So carrying that analogy forward, how will the Tesla uh, situation, they have a much larger market cap than many of their, their peers, how will that play forward and what are the analogies with, with the, uh, the Apple yeah. uh, experience with the iPhone? So if we think about evaluation of a business, what we're buying are future cash flows. And one of the arguments against uh, Tesla is their volume relative to the competition. The problem with that argument is we're not buying volume. We're buying profitability. So in other words, it'd be much better to have a production of, let's say, 2 million cars that produce six times as much as a production of 500,000 cars. So Tesla, relative to the competition, on a unit economic basis, produces substantially more profit. It's, it's in the range of four to six times, depending on who you're comparing against. If traditional auto doesn't innovate fast enough, then to answer your question, they fall into the camp of what happened with the, the phone players. Uh, personally, I believe there'll be some sort of uh, path in between that will wind up uh, playing out. But the market value, I mean, ultimately, it, it will come back to intrinsic value and come back to future cash flows. And if you look at the future cash flows of Tesla, even the current cash flows, I mean, they're on track to produce 20 billion of uh, net profit after tax on a gap basis within the next, call it, 12 to, 12 to 16 months or so. That 20 billion is now equivalent to uh, 28 times earnings. So when we, we made a lot of money on it with Elon, we bought Tesla in uh, February of 2020. Our, our cost is in the low 40s. So a lot less than we, we had made a, a year ago, but certainly it's up significantly. But when we bought Tesla, it was trading at uh, like 200 times earnings. But that multiple, again, to, to my point earlier, didn't make much sense because uh, the market wasn't looking at, the, looking at the reinvestment opportunities for the company, which are very high. And so now the multiple is down to 28 times. Uh, and comparing against the competitors, I think we're going to have a similar dynamic play out to, to answer your question. And we, can, we could talk more offline so we don't take up the whole time on Tesla, but uh, I do believe that a similar dynamic is actually playing out right now. And some companies will be able to innovate fast enough. They'll be able to do so by perhaps starting new subsidiaries. It's uncertain what will happen to the legacy businesses, but we're talking about 500 billion of stranded assets with, uh, within traditional auto. And that is certainly uh, something that uh, is problematic for traditional auto. Would you mind repeating the, you had three stages, um, with the final stage being acceptance, 
Yes. Uh, can you re repeat those three? Sure. So uh, this, I, do have... I think you're referring to uh, uh, Schopenhauer. So in the first stage, uh, all truth is violently opposed. And, and then it's uh, accepted. And, and lastly, it's, it's considered self-evident. So we all go through this kind of process and think uh, this is a nice corollary between yeah, it fits between Apple. quite well. And Apple, for that matter. Ex exactly. And I so, believe the same thing is playing out today. So my question is, uh, during which of those stages is the appropriate time to actually make an investment? Well, by answering that question, I can prove to you I was not smart enough to buy Tesla earlier. <laughs> so it's somewhere, somewhere hopefully before the last stage. And we're certainly not... Uh, at the last stage. Case in point, uh, Buffett buying Apple, and case in point, Buffett buying Amazon. And if you look at Amazon uh, and the negative criticism that Amazon had amongst short sellers and value investors, and a friend of mine bought, uh, my friend of mine who's considered a, he's a very good value investor, and he, he actually got hate mail when he bought Amazon. But as soon as it entered the 13F of Berkshire, the criticism just disappeared, like, overnight. That was it. Tobias. Um, Welcome from Austria. Thank you very much. Uh, Welcome from Austria. Thank you very much for your talk. Um, I'm very interested, so my previous question was also about equity financing. I'm it, sorry, what, equity? Equity financing, like stock issuance. Yes. And it's very interesting, especially in Tesla's case. What, what, what do you think was its role in Tesla's case to, to bring it up? I, I'm not sure I understand which equity financing um, you're like referring Tesla, to. Like uh, Tesla, when you go through the cash flow statements over the last um, five, six, seven years, um, they had quite a lot of stock issuance mm -hmm. and financed a lot of through it. What, yeah. what, what do you think is the role, like how big of a role was that for the success of Tesla? Elon has, in my opinion, been one of the true master allocators of capital. So we could disagree a lot with, you know, his personality. Uh, certainly, you know, I would prefer for him to stop tweeting so much. But ultimately, I don't think that it matters. And he said that, you know, starting that business was like eating glass. Uh, he's been a master at allocating capital and making sure that that company was solid. And Tesla and Ford were the only two companies in America, auto companies, that have not gone bankrupt. In uh, late 2019, uh, Tesla's prepared work for an equity financing, and they raised around $2 billion. And he knew that this could be problematic. In other words, the, 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 the virus could be problematic. And he did not want to take that, uh, that risk. So in order to prevent the company from being in a terrible situation, given it's, there is some cyclicality to the business, he raised uh, the equity financing. And I'm not sure what would have happened, Tobias, had he not done that. But the company today is a very different company than it was three, four years ago. Completely different company. It was, uh, to me, untouchable three, four years ago. And today, it's a completely different business with almost $20 billion of net cash on the balance sheet, producing $20 billion of economic profits uh, over the next... 12 months or so with a, a return on incremental capital of almost 80%. It's a tremendously profitable business now. 